Just before we get started on today's episode, I wanted to let you know that Winford's story is amazing, but he does mention attempts of suicide. However, the information he delivers in the conversation is invaluable and really powerful. So I do hope you can take lots from the conversation and I will leave you some links in the show notes if you do need some help. Welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef and I'm a wellbeing and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids and passionate about helping more women to understand and accept their amazing ADHD brains. After speaking to many women just like me and probably you, I know there is a need for more health and lifestyle support for women newly diagnosed with ADHD. In these conversations, you'll learn from insightful guests, hear new findings and discover powerful perspectives and lifestyle tools to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm and purposeful life wherever you are on your ADHD journey. Here's today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I am Kate Moore Youssef, your host, and today I have someone who is absolutely fascinating and I've been really looking forward to speaking to him after the one and only Ned Halliwell recommended um, I get in touch. So today we have got Winford Dorr and he describes himself as a passionate dad and an unorthodox researcher and he is a UK-based entrepreneur and the founder of the Zing Brain Development Programs. Over the last 20 years, he has focused his attention on changing the world one brain at a time. (laughs) And he's funded many research projects. What I will be talking about is something that he's created is the Zing Performance, which now has the tools, scientific research and strategy to help achieve the results that every parent and child longs to see. We're going to explain all of this in the conversation, but for now, Winford, welcome to the podcast and delighted to have you here. Okay, yeah, thanks for bringing me on. As I said in the intro, um, I spent a week studying under Dr. Halliwell, which was a great pleasure. And he talked about you while we were talking about um, a section on the cerebellum. And this was a really fascinating part. And he really sort of honed in on, you know, make sure that you look into Zing performance, you look into um, what Winford Dawes doing in this area. And I did. And I thought, right, this this guy needs to come onto the podcast. So first, I mean, I don't even know where to start, but I think maybe... Perhaps if you could explain a little bit about your your story and what brought you here. Well, I've got four children. Four's about enough, isn't it? Four is great, but <laughs> I, I couldn't cope with five. But my oldest daughter had the same education as my other children, but simply wasn't learning. Until she went to school, she seemed bright and just seemed like she was going to have a very, very successful school life. But it wasn't long before simple things like concentration reading. In her case, it was even making friends she struggled with. So she'd got issues and we had no clue how and why. So I'm used to making things happen, Kate. So I took her to every person in the country that seemed to have got serious expertise around dyslexia and ADHD and, and so on. And the best I was getting at the time was she's got to learn to live with it. And she was getting more and more depressed. Meanwhile, I was running, I was running uh, some very successful businesses and, and everyone thought I'd got this amazing life. But of course, I'd got a daughter that was seriously struggling. Nobody has an amazing life if you've got a child that's struggling. So behind my external facade of, of success was desperation for my daughter. Well, finally, she attempted to take her life. 
I was up in the north of England, uh, not far from where you are, and I was at least two hours from home. And I got that dreadful phone call that every parent just never wants to have to say that Susie had attempted to take her life, was in hospital, and the message was, we don't know whether we can save her. Well, I tried to ask 20 questions, and but the phone had gone down, and it's my other daughter, and she'd gone back to be with Susie's side. And so I rushed back. And on that journey, something happened to me. First of all, I was going through all of the things that I perhaps should have tried. So there was a lot of guilt. But towards the end of the journey, as I got closer to the hospital, I, I just put it out to the universe that if Susie was saved, I was going to make my career all about finding why Susie's brain wasn't like other brains. And I, you know, I was really a little bit angry that no one had got any help for her. You know, we're brilliant. We can get to the moon. We're thinking of going to Mars. And we've got countless children on Earth struggling with attention and behavior and reading issues and so on. So many fundamental issues. And so I got to the hospital and I've made the decision that's what's going to happen. And my, as I got there, my other daughter had worked out I was arriving and came out to say, Susie is coming round and we think she's going to be okay. Well, I, there was a lot of tears, as you can imagine. But that changed my life. And I, so I sold my businesses and I started research. I didn't know where to start. But I was very fortunate. I bumped into a professor from Sheffield University, Professor Rod Nicholson, and he became my mentor. And he's my mentor to this day. So he plugs me into what's happening in neuroscience. So that, that, that was what happened. Oh, by the way, Susie started reading three months later, at the age of 28, she was reading. And to this day, she reads, reads really well. And even though when she left school, she couldn't read three or four or letter words. She was that. And she's alive and well to this day. So it's been worthwhile. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that story. You know, I just I can't even imagine as a parent what, what that would have been like. How old was she at the time when this happened? Well, when she got increasingly depressed in her late teens and early 20s and all sorts of things went wrong for her. Um, she was pretty seriously affected by learning issues, which was bizarre to look. You know, to, when you listen to her, she's got intelligence, but she could not take information in. She couldn't retain it. She couldn't recall it. Uh, and, and, you know, to, just to be told, as I was at the time, she's got to learn to live with it. All they were offering was antidepressants. And I was saying, that's not the root of the problem, is it? You know, that's just a sticking plaster over a, a major issue that's happening underneath. Yeah. So, you know, as an obsessed dad, as an obsessed researcher, I wanted solutions. And when I talked to neuroscientists around the world, when I started exploring this, I found that there's so many researchers that are brilliant at making pieces of a jigsaw, fantastic pieces of a jigsaw. They're awesome about little tiny bits of the brain, but nobody is doing the jigsaw. So all I've done this last 20 years is take amazing research and fit it in to a model that ends up reaching people, getting to people and, and transforming their lives. And I mean transforming their lives. You know, in Susie's case, it was transformation to not be able to read to be able to read is transformation. To not understand how to behave appropriately and to start behaving appropriately and sensitively is a transformation. It transforms every aspect of life. So I'm just very practical. 
very passionate about what I do. And I'm sitting on the shoulders of giants who are making all these pieces of jigsaw. And uh, just they just put them there. They put them out into, into the research papers, at, hoping that somebody will do something with them. So that's all I'm doing. Yeah. It's fascinating. So I'm just going back to your daughter. Did Had you tried like medication? Yes. Not, not the antidepressants. You tried ADHD medication or anything like that. And you hadn't noticed... A, a big difference or it didn't work for her well uh, look as many parents will tell you you can, you can put you can put your child on medication and there is a chance that you'll get some improvement it might dumb them down so their behavior is a bit better they're not so impulsive and so on but in Susie's case that's not what she needed she needed she needed some of her neural pathways opening up and what I've now discovered is that there's two fundamental things that dramatically reduce our mental capacity or our children's mental capacity. One of them is the cerebellum. And that affects the way our skills are developed. If we are very good at some things, natural at some things, it's because the cerebellum has done its job fully. and We've got very precise, very automatic skills and we don't have to think about them. We can perform those skills effortlessly. But if there's some parts of our life that are struggling a bit because and we don't find those things as, as automatic and as effortless as they should be because we're having to think about them it's because the cerebellum hasn't done its job well one of the problems about the cerebellum is that it's only been understood really this last 10 years or so well yeah. fortunately with the, my, the mentor that took me under his wing professor rod nicholson he started teaching me about the cerebellum and the importance of it uh, and I, I really would love you to have rod nicholson on as a guest if ever you got a chance he's the most amazing guy he's the most humble guy but he i have to give him thanks and praise for plugging me into everything i'm uh, i'm trying to share with you now so the cerebellum was misunderstood he was absolutely the cutting edge probably one of the first neuroscientists to say the cerebellum isn't just about balance and coordination yes it is that but it's masterminding the coordination of everything else we do. So they now know that the cerebellum's role in balance and coordination is only a small part of its role. Most of it is coordinating all other things, including things like memory functions and emotional control and so on. So I was at cutting edge without realizing it. And if you can imagine, Kate, you know, I'm not in a university and I'd got a daughter that was seriously depressed. I was worried about the next phone call in case it was another one about her so i didn't i didn't wait for ethics committee approval i was fortunate i didn't have to wait for funding approval i just wanted to do whatever it took so i ended up i ended up funding 57 clinics and about 45,000 people going through trialing how can we change the cerebellum how can we develop the cerebellum naturally so I wasn't interested in a sticking plaster approach for Susie. I was interested in finding what is the real root reason why for Susie learning was difficult. And that's what I just kept probing and probing and probing. And then having found, yes, it is underdevelopment in the cerebellum. We then worked with all these people in these clinics and doctors and therapists and worked out how can we stimulate the cerebellum to, to get it working. And what we now know is that we needed 45,000 people because there were so many different brains in this world. After we treated all these people, we could predict the best stimulation, the best challenge to the cerebellum 
to maximize the speed of development of that part of the brain. And now the research is showing the very exercises, very type of exercises we use, multiply stem cells in the cerebellum. Now, the cerebellum's not many people know that much about it in the public domain. It actually contains three quarters of all our brain cells. It's hugely important. And yet when some MRI studies, when pictures of the brain are taken to this day, they miss off the cerebellum. It's scary. There's a lot more research coming out about it now. It's it's exponential. So there's there's a quick backdrop about what what was the the, the genesis of my research. Yeah, and it's interesting because when we learn about ADHD from the beginning, we hear about the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. We we sort of know about the different parts of the brain where ADHD is affected. And then when I heard about the cerebellum, when Dr. Halliwell was talking about it, I was like, how have I not heard about this? Mm. And obviously he wrote about it in ADHD 2.0 and he um, mm. gives us ideas, like you say, sort of going back to the balance, you know, things mm. like surfing, skateboarding, anything that we can do to sort of encourage better balance. Mm. And I was like, why Why is this not being taught? Like, why are we not hearing about this? Why, why are we not understanding it? So... Mm. Why do you think it's so untapped? And I guess why is it so, you know, talk about ADHD, why does it have such a strong link to helping improve our ADHD traits and symptoms? All right, your first question, how is it How is it so untapped? I don't know. I really don't know. You know, I've talked to many professors who are now engaged with the cerebellum and they have such enormous difficulty getting research funding for this. You know, the research funding process, I think, is one of the things that holds back real progress, especially if there's a paradigm shift. You know, this is a paradigm shift, and it seems to take decades before research funding is directed to the paradigm shift because there's such competition for research funding. Well, I was fortunate enough I didn't have to wait for research funding. I could, if, I, if a professor was telling me, there's a good idea here and nobody's tried this, off I went. And within weeks, I was yeah. feeding back to that professor. And here's the results of the research. And he would discuss that with me and say, do you know what, you ought to be looking in this direction now, just fine tune this. And that's how our progress went. So we had no constraints, no inertia at all to deal with. And why is it not reaching people? Well, let me try and explain what's happening neurologically with leads to ADHD. The prefrontal cortex is very involved, but that's kind of down the line. So if someone has a skill, let's take reading, which is a major problem for many with ADHD, not for all, but for many. The problem with reading for the vast majority, and I mean over 90%, is their eye tracking isn't a fully developed skill. It's not perfect. Instead of their eyes going smoothly, their eyes are jumping around. And we've got a, a video test which takes 10 minutes and shows parents and teachers this, and they get blown away. Well, the dads don't. The dads get angry that... That, that the schools haven't given this to them before because all sorts of wrong assumptions were made, being made about why a child isn't reading easily. If it's poor eye tracking, the letters are going in scrambled, sometimes backwards, sometimes upside down because the eyes are jumping around and they've got an enormous amount of processing to do to turn that into words they can comprehend. Well, mm. that's a skill. It's nothing to do with intelligence. Often it's assumed they can't be very bright because they're not scoring very well. No, it's usually the opposite. The brighter you are, the more likely you are to have some skills incompletely developed. So the cerebellum is what 
creates skills. The cerebellum is what learns. And if you end up with a skill that's underdeveloped, like and we're taking the example of eye tracking, then the thinking brain has to get involved every time you try and use that skill. They call it conscious compensation. So instead of it being a fully unconscious skill, it's partly unconscious because it's partly developed, but then the thinking brain gets involved to help out. Now, the trouble with the thinking brain is, A, it's busy, very busy. We can only do about seven things at once. But secondly, it's so much slower than the cortex. So the prefrontal cortex, where the thinking brain is, is they're arguing about this. I'm, I'm, typically, it's 100,000 times slower than the cortex. So if you... So let's jump to riding a bike. If you try and ride a bike and you haven't got those skills hardwired by the cerebellum, you fall off because it's your thinking brain telling you how to balance, trying to tell you how far to lean over and don't forget to turn the pedals and this is how you use the brakes and so on. When you're thinking about it, you fall off because the processing mm. is too slow. It's only when the cerebellum has taken those thoughts created a program that it performs in the cortex where it's 100,000 times faster, can you actually ride? So coming back to poor reading skills and poor eye tracking, when you've got conscious compensation, in other words, the thinking brain, the prefrontal cortex helping out with that underdeveloped skill, it's too slow, it's clumsy, it's bad, mm -hmm. reading is hard work, and what's worse you're filling the thinking brain with stuff that need not, should not be there. Now, that's bad for two reasons. First of all, when you're reading, you're unscrambling all of those words that are jumping about, letters that are jumping about because your eyes are moving. You're unscrambling that in your thinking brain. And you're trying to remember the words you've just read in your thinking brain. So you get to the end of the mm. sentence. It's been far too busy. And you can't remember what you read. So you read it again and again yeah. and again. It's incredibly hard work. And then spelling is difficult, really difficult, because every time you see a word, your letters happen to be jumping about in a different way. The letters are going in in a scrambled order. So learning to, to read is uh, learning to spell is very, very difficult. So can you see the cerebellum is the root cause, but the consequence... Yeah happens in the prefrontal cortex of thinking brain and also in there are your executive functions so your thinking brain is overloaded your executive functions are out the window they're well down the list of priorities and what are they attention impulsivity short-term memory functions control of emotions and so on and what are the symptoms we see with adhd well i've just listed them yeah. so so Prefrontal cortex absolutely involved, but the reason that's overloaded is the cerebellum hasn't been fine-tuning those skills we need all the time. So we should be focusing on developing the cerebellum and really exactly. nurturing it and, and helping it. I mean, when you were just talking then and talking about the reading and, you know, listen, I, like I said before, I've got four kids and um, a few of my daughters really, you know, struggle with with the reading and the retaining information and um as they're getting older in school it's having an impact on their self-esteem and their yeah. self-belief and how they view themselves and i know for a fact that all of them are intelligent children yeah. i know that um but academia equals you know if you're not doing well or you're not remembering you're not able to start an essay or you're not be able to remember yeah. um, information in an exam 
that tells you know any kid that they're, they're dumb, they're stupid, and they're not working well enough, they're not trying hard enough. All these terrible beliefs that are sort of you know impregnating in them, and it breaks my heart because when you talk about this, it's just obvious. It's just so obvious. And I have one daughter that just tells me that she just can't read. She can't wow. read. She can read, but reading a book and retaining the information, she says she has to read the same you know paragraph five times. And she's just exhausted. And can you imagine that impact on you when you're reading and reading and you still can't remember the information? And it just upsets me so much because I understand that. And I am so grateful to understand the way I learn. And the way I learn is always through audio, which is why I... I've got this podcast and this is why so many people listen to the podcast is because they learn much better through audio. Mm. Um, and I just wish that there was, you know, those options for kids in, in, in schools, you know, give them that option as well. We, we sh- really should have learned to focus on a focus on the upsides that ADHD have and those with dyslexia have. And secondly, we should be focusing on let's solve the root cause. I believe education has an obligation to look for potential in every child, not assume it's going to come out, look for it, do whatever it takes to nurture it. And that's what, you know, that's, that's why I bought a school because I wanted to prove that education can be far, far better. But can I touch on a couple of things you just said a moment Mm. ago? You talked about low Mm self-esteem. People try and explain self-esteem using psychology. And that's fine. Maybe they can. I don't. To me, it's far more obvious to explain self-esteem through neurology. So, for instance, if the cerebellum hasn't fully developed a skill, it might be listening skill, turning what you hear into thoughts you comprehend. It might be eye tracking, as we touched on earlier. It could be social skills to be able to read people and, and so on. There's all sorts of skills. If they're underdeveloped, whenever I'm trying to use those skills... Conscious compensation is needed. The prefrontal cortex is busy. And whenever you have to use thought about something, confidence and self-esteem is right down. Confidence and self-esteem is, to me, very easily explained neurologically. So if someone's in a social situation and they're a bit shy, maybe the scale of turning thoughts into words that come out of their mouth is not fully automatized. Well, guess what? That means they need conscious compensation. That means there's things happening in the prefrontal cortex that shouldn't really have to happen there, and their confidence is always low. And conversely, when you develop the cerebellum, it automizes that skill fully. It all happens now up in the cortex. They don't have to think so much, and their confidence goes straight up without any psychological intervention, totally with natural neurological development and this is all about neural neuroplasticity we're, we're building new neural pathways Absolutely. we're creating new synapses okay Absolutely. so this but, is what's fascinating hang on you touched Sorry on something else I, 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 i'm scared <laughs> to lose it because i'm a bit ADHD. i'm probably i'm a bit adhd but i'm scared to lose it but you, you raised another very valid point when it comes to writing something down i'm quite sure you have you seen this in your children where they've got great ideas but getting it down in paper, oh, it's a it's a nightmare. Yeah. Well, I mean that's that's me as well. Hundred percent. Well, I'm going to add to that sentence. It's you at the moment. Mm. We stand a good chance of changing all that. So let me just explain what happens when you have usually ADHD folk. Their intellect is way way above average. 
people don't see it, but it's way above average. So you've probably got a fire hose of ideas going into your brain there, but getting it into down in paper at the moment is a nightmare. Let me explain why. When you've got certain skills that are not fully developed, and I would, you know, for many, it's handwriting isn't fully developed. And, you know, the very bit of the brain that controls eye movement for reading controls fingertips. Same part of the brain. It's that they're both fine motor skills. So people that struggle with reading often struggle with writing. And that's why they'll hold their pen in a strange way. They'll hold it. And if you watch their hand moving, it's all of their hand is moving when they write. That's a gross motor skill. They haven't got the fine motor skills. When you write properly, I'll put that in quotes, it's the fingertips that are moving. So, so there's a link between handwriting and there's a, with, with reading skills. But what does that mean? It means underdeveloped skill, cerebellum, you let me down again. And that means prefrontal cortex full of helping out with moving your fingers to write. And guess where... So guess where all your thoughts are being collated to write them down? In your thinking brain. But the thinking brain is full of trying to control your pen. So you've got no room for your thoughts. And the wonderful thing is when you develop the cerebellum, the cerebellum then goes to those skills and says, oh, I can finish these off now, make them hardwired, get them fully automatic and frees up the space in the prefrontal cortex. So we, we, did, a, we did a research study at a school in, in, uh, in Warwickshire called Balsall Common Primary School. Uh, and uh, one, of the, one of the girls there, three weeks into the program, it was a blind study, so teachers didn't know which child was being done and so on. Three weeks into the study, uh, a, a girl in, that would normally write two or three lines had written three pages all of a sudden. So the teacher quite understandably said, did mummy help you with this? No, it, I did it. Look, it's okay. I don't mind if mummy helped you. It's fine. Just tell me. No. And the teacher realised she'd never seen anything like this happen. No transformation had ever happened in her teaching career. So the girl mm. burst out crying, ran out into the corridor where the headmaster found her. And a while later, the headmaster rang me up. He said, it's no longer a blind study. He said, the teachers have worked <laughs> out who is going through this transformation. Did we make her more intelligent? Absolutely not. We didn't need to. She'd already got it. All she needed was her fundamental skills that she uses all the time to be finished off so that her prefrontal cortex was available to, to collect her thoughts, to write them down. So does that make sense? It makes perfect sense because I'm now imagining, I'm very good at like bringing things down to very simple levels so I don't want to kind of I don't I hope it just doesn't dismiss all your incredible work but I'm thinking <laughs> here that prefrontal cortex is like working on overdrive and there's all this stuff going on and we're exhausted because we're, we're overcompensating all the time and so when we fine-tune the cerebellum and we start teaching it these new skills the prefrontal cortex can just take a bit of a backseat and chill for a bit and this new strength that we've honed can come in and sort of like alleviate all the the noise and all the stuff that we've been we've been trying to do I guess because all I can think of is uh, again I keep coming back to one of my daughters is that she holds her pen in the most different way I've ever seen I've never seen anyone hold a pen and no matter what not not one teacher has ever been able to teach her to hold a pen in a different way and but her handwriting is beautiful but what she tells me is that when she's writing 
she can't do anything apart from write. She's yeah. not hearing, yeah. she can yeah. hear, but she's not retaining. Whereas my handwriting is so awful that not one person will be able to read my handwriting. At the moment, at the moment, please add. At the moment. Please add. At, at the moment, at the moment. <laughs> I think anyone can agree that at the moment, modern life can feel pressurised and at any one time, our bodies are dealing with a range of different stresses that could be physical, emotional, biological or environmental and even more so, we feel this with ADHD. So I am delighted that The Herb Tender is sponsoring today's episode the Herb Tender supplements have been designed with ADHD in mind, and they offer a range of different wellness supplements, all formulated with adaptogens and functional mushrooms to help us manage these stresses of modern day living, enabling us to live a healthier, calmer and more focused life. Adaptogens help us find equilibrium and possess numerous beneficial powers from reducing stress, aiding sleep, to enhancing focus, performance and immunity. And the Herb Tender supplements also contain powerfully intelligent herbs to help normalize our internal systems, regulate physiological function and restore metabolic balance. I've been taking these supplements regularly now for the past month and I can really notice a difference, which is why I'd love you to give them a go too. And I have a couple of favorites of mine and for anyone with ADHD, um, which are the Focus and Clarity, which have obvious benefits for ADHD brains. And these can be taken in the day whenever you need to just get your head down and focus. I take mine in the morning and I really notice what a productive, um, good few hours I have. And then I have the Calm and Collected, which I take towards the end of the afternoon, in the evening, when I don't need to be productive anymore. I want to encourage more rest and more relaxation. And it really does help us wind down after a very busy day. And it also helps manage anxiety and contributes to better sleep and just makes us feel calmer as well when we wake up in the morning. So I really highly recommend the Calm and Collected. So if you would like to give them a go, the Herb Tender is offering us a 20% discount. So if you head to the-herbtender.com, so that's the-herbtender.com, and you type in the discount code KATEMORE20, so that's K A T E. M-O-R-E 20, Kate Moore 20, you will get 20% off any supplements on the website. I really would recommend giving them a go. And even if you just want to try the Focus and Clarity and the Calm Collector just to get you started, I would definitely recommend these. Now back to today's episode. So I guess the big question is, tell me a little bit about how, you know, people are listening right now and they're thinking, okay, what is this program? How can I get involved? Um, what do I have to do? Like, do you, is it in person? Is it online? Can you explain a little bit about Zinc performance? Yeah, it's all, I mean, at one time I had loads of clinics all around the place. Then I realised we weren't reaching everybody that needed it. We spent a lot of time turning it into a very safe online programme. And that, that programme starts with some assessments. The assessments themselves are based upon what neuroscientists use to measure uh, visual working memory, visual processing speed, auditory working memory and auditory processing speed, ability to concentrate, response time. So we've got a whole range of assessments. So you mentioned that you're a, a, an auditory learner. Well, when you do that test, you'll probably find you're strong, long on auditory processing, but you're much shorter on visual processing. Can you see? Yes. But can you turn what you see into words you understand and so on? That's an awful lot harder. And But we measure those things. So we start from neurological measures. We get subjective measures. How are you actually performing in real life? 
So we get the two, neurological and subjective. And then from that, we've got artificial intelligence in our own software. We can work out what is the best stimulation you need to, to create, start to create change in the cerebellum. And what we're trying to do is increase the density of gray matter in the cerebellum. And we've now research showing that what we, the exact exercises we use increases density of gray matter. But every brain is different, so we have to totally personalize every program so that we can take them forward, develop them at an optimal speed. So the exercises are simple. They're not, they're not complicated. They're not cardio, but they are challenging. I've decided to do my own program again recently because I discovered my balance wasn't quite as good. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm apparently I'm past my prime. I don't like to think that, or apparently I am. And I found that I couldn't stand on one leg with my eyes closed for very long anymore. I also found I couldn't stand on one leg with my head with to one side on the shoulder very easily for long. Now that's just two simple examples of key circuits in the brain, in the cerebellum, that are vital to the overall efficiency and the ability of the brain to learn and develop new things. So what we're doing in our program is actually looking for missing key links in the cerebellum. And then we practice those and we develop them and that development happens. And gradually we're increasing the density of gray matter in the cerebellum. So it's a daily program, it's once a day, typically 10 minutes for typically 90 days. And all that's doing is challenging the cerebellum. We're doing it at the same time as we've nearly always got a balance element in there because the vestibular, the balance organ, is what powers the cerebellum. And so you have to power the cerebellum, get it excited, create neuroplasticity, or as a recent nature study said, when doing the exercises we do, you multiply stem cells. We're creating stem cells in the cerebellum in the right area with the right level of stimulation and then we get feedback every day after you've done your exercises how easy and how hard that was from that we can predict okay how do we tweak that tomorrow how do we adjust it we increase this increase the degree of stimulation a bit in the right way give the brain a new slightly new challenge so it's a journey so whether it's a 80-year-old lady that's struggling with her memory, whether it's an 80-year-old child that's struggling with his or her reading, or whether it's a 28-year-old athlete, the peak of his game, wanting to be world champion. We can take the sophistication in the development of the cerebellum to the next level. And it is transformational, Kate. So that's the program. Once a day, 10 minutes for typically 90 days, and then every 30 days, we repeat that neurological assessment using the same sort of measures that's used around the world. And you can chart your own progress. You can also, you're also putting down your own subjective views of what life is really like in certain key areas. Mm. And so you can see the journey as the neurology develops. So your own skills and competencies develop as well. Oh my God, I love it. It's just, it sounds fascinating. And I just love the fact that it's like from different ages as well, that, you know, as you keep saying this at the moment, you know, making sure that people understand that we're always, in, you know, we can always evolve, we can always develop. And, um, I, you know, thinking that it could be brought in. What What's the youngest age you'd say you could do it? Seven. The cerebellum is changing seven. a lot up to the age of seven. So, we could do it younger, but it's until you till the cerebellum is settled down, 
we're not comfortable doing it safe from seven. And then a couple of years back, um, Sheffield University came to me and said, oh, we're going to use your program on some seniors and some elderly. So I said, no, you can't do that. I said, no, 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 no. They said, it's too late. We've got it organized. And I think, well, I've got no proof that, that we can do it with old people who are in cognitive decline. So they said, look, if you're creating neuroplasticity, we think you can get neuroplasticity up at any age. So they did. They went ahead. I, I was, Kate, I was nervous. And they came back after a, a couple of months and they said, you know what? We've changed all those old people. We've recovered their balance. We've recovered their memory. We've recovered their confidence. We've recovered their reading skills in, in the old age. And then they wrote it up. What was stunning was they only, they only did it. You know, they only did about 10% of our normal program and they got those results. So you can create neuroplasticity at any age. So I, I, look, you, you, I want to give your listeners hope, whether it's the worrying about their children or themselves or often their partner, you know, you can make these fundamental changes. You can prove that the underlying intelligence that you get glimpses of can be brought into full-time use. I don't see as a AD, I see ADHD as somebody holding a banner saying, huge potential, just come and find it. I, I don't see it as the kind of negative that so many, and, you know, Ned is the same. He's, he's a huge yes. fan of the positive upsides of, of ADHD. I, I am too, because I've witnessed tens of thousands showing that potential that they always had and bringing it to the surface. Yeah, absolutely. It's the, it's the strength-based approach. So if someone's listening right now and they're thinking, you know, they'd love to do something like this, but I do know it's quite costly. Um, and if someone is listening right now and, and money is, you know, it is hard for them to... All I know is in, in the UK at the moment, getting a diagnosis, getting help, there's a huge waiting list. And then if we want to go private, it's so costly. And it's just, um, sadly, it's a privilege for, for many people. Could people be activating or developing their cerebellum um, at home? What would you say? Um, is it yoga poses? Like, you know, like I mentioned before, is it anything to do with balance, you know, surfing, bike riding? What would you say at a very sort of basic level that people could do to develop um, their cerebellum? Any balance exercises, absolutely. Do as many as you can. Uh, and and the, the trouble is, it doesn't always work. So I, I'm scared of building up people's hopes. Mm. I really am. You know, if you look at all of the um, kids, you know, my grandson's skiing today, uh, and you look at most of the kids that are brilliant at skiing, most of the brilliant skiers don't do quite as well as uh, in their academic stuff. So you can ski all you like, you can do rollerblading all you like. You're not actually solving the problem. That's the trouble. So you, you do need this combination of balance and a challenge to the cerebellum at the same time. That's the magical combination. That's why brain training is good, but it's only short term. If you want to create lasting change, you've got to stimulate the, the, the vestibular system and the cerebellum. And when the cerebellum gets something, boy, has it got it. So, you know, I literally put my bike away when I was 18. I put it, I got a car and I put my bike away for over 20 years. And I pulled it out. All the circuits were still there. Just I cleaned the bike down, pumped the tires up, and I was off and away. That doesn't happen with the hippocampus, which is where we're remembering facts and numbers and so on. So change yeah. the cerebellum, 
you're creating lasting change. So I, I, w I really wish there was something uh, that, that I could tell people, do this and you're guaranteed to make a difference uh, to your child. Let me tell you what we have done. And, you know, you know where my heart is. My heart comes from desperately wanting to help my own daughter out. So what, what we've done, we've, we work hard to make it as cheap as possible. You don't need to go to clinics and see doctors and so on these days. You can do it all online. Um, we've brought the cost right down. We've made it only 90 days now. And it, it's, I don't think it's expensive at all. But we give a full money back guarantee. In other words, if your child doesn't make significant progress. So A, that's a bit arrogant to say you can have your money back, but we don't have to give money back because guess what? If you do it, it works. And it's as simple as that. I'm working towards the day when the government will say this has to be in every school. And if the government said that to me today, I would make sure that they couldn't just afford it. It would be so stupidly cheap that every child could, could benefit from it. You know, you look, I, I'm right next to the HS2 project. One Don't even talk about that. 1% <laughs> of the 1% of the HS2 project could transform every child in this country that's struggling with reading. You know, we've actually yeah. got more than a generation that are struggling needlessly with reading because Rod Nicholson, the professor I'm, I'm asked, suggesting you bring on, he was telling the world how to transform reading issues 30 years ago. It was ignored. He was talked down by an industry that's hell-bent on getting phonics out there. Now, phonics is necessary, but every child we've ever met had phonics already taught to them well by teachers. That's skill number one. Skill number two is is fluency, and that only comes when you develop the cerebellum. So Rod Nicholson was preaching this for over 30 years, and he was ignored, and he was talked down, and he was ridiculed, but he was right. So phonics, great, important, up to the age of seven. Beyond that, you, you need the ability to fluidly move your eyes, take in the information, and process it. So we've got more than a generation that are struggling with ADHD that shouldn't be, struggling yeah. with reading difficulties that shouldn't be. So the government should do something about it. It's a bit embarrassing for them. It, their policy has been wrong for a long, long time. Mm. And, and guess what? Our children are suffering needlessly. Yeah. Shouldn't have happened. Yeah. I would absolutely love that if you could carry on working towards getting this into schools because listening to the parliamentary debate that was on TV a few mm -hmm. weeks ago and um, every MP had, you know, a really devastating story to tell about, mm -hmm. you know, the constituents that have come forward with regards to ADHD mm -hmm. and autism, um, getting assessment and the waiting list. It's just ne it's never been a priority. And I think they need to start understanding that this is sort of, um, this is this is fundamental to people's mental health. I know that, you know, from your daughter's experience, you know, aid, um, anxiety, mental health problems, it's all interconnected with neurodivergence. And mm -hmm. so, amazing yes let's get kids reading let's get kids retaining information get you know their self belief, belief self-esteem but essentially the mental health side of yeah. having um adhd autism dyslexia anything like that it's it's vital it's vital and um you know i really do hope that what you're doing well, um can help with that as well well kate you you imagine if you're forcing much of your processing to happen in your prefrontal cortex, where it's a 100,000 times slower and therefore harder, rather than up in the cortex, where you've got infinite capacity and infinite speed, don't you think your brain is going to wear out quicker? 
Don't you think that explains why the incidence of dementia is much higher where there's ADHD? Your brain is whirring so hard, so fast, so much of the time. Mm. Of course it is. So it, it, this is really, really important for the world to understand. I, I don't know why this hasn't been publicized and spread to, to the extent it deserves. It's major. Well, I hope that with this podcast, and I will be sharing it, and I will be, hopefully hopefully, lots of people will be sharing this, and, um, you know, I'll do my very best to get to get the word out there for you. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and just learning from you, and I, <laughs> as you said that at the end, I could feel my brain has been like whirring, whirring, trying to retain the information, trying to remember it. Uh, the, my science, I, I love anything to do with neuroscience or anything, but I, I struggle to remember all the, all the names and everything. So I'm sort of writing down notes and stuff, but I will make sure that lots of this information is in the show notes so people can go back to it and um, and click on any links that you provide as well, because I think that'll be essential for many people. Kate, thank you for working so hard to help people. There's not enough help out there for them. The, all this information about the brain is taking far too long to reach the families that could benefit from it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Winfred, thank you so much. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Keep us updated. I want to hear where you are, where you're up to next. And if you get any updates about getting more of these um, programs into the school, I want to hear. Um, and I will be making sure that I share this with, um, I've got lots of um, a network of teachers and things like that. Mm. So I'll be making sure that they, they hear about this too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. I hope you found what you were looking for in this conversation and it has helped guide you towards some further self-healing, self-exploration and most importantly, self-acceptance. And if you have enjoyed this conversation and would like to experience more of my work, such as access to exclusive live workshops and opportunities for group coaching sessions, connecting with other like-minded women, and a general feeling of belonging, please come and check out my monthly membership, the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Collective. I've made it as affordable as possible, and I offer you lots of resources and opportunities for connection and support from other women all around the world being diagnosed with ADHD later on in life. I'd absolutely love to see you there. All the details are in this episode's show notes or on my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. See you in the next episode.